As Congress starts the appropriations process for fiscal 2020, one of the questions it's facing is how how much to spend on the legislative branch itself. After years of funding cuts, a coalition of good government groups and former members of Congress say it's long past time for lawmakers to start investing in the Article I branch's institutional capacity. One of the authors of a new letter to the House Appropriations Committee, Daniel Schumann, joins us now to talk about it. Schumann is the policy director at Demand Progress. And Daniel, I don't I don't think anybody would argue the legislative branch should get as much funding as the executive, but it's still worth looking at the, the share of the overall discretionary budget. So maybe you can start us off by just talking about both that ratio and how much those investments have actually fallen over the years. Well, sure. So over the last decade or so, the amount of money that's been appropriated by uh, Congress has gone up by about 10 percent. The amount of money that's gone towards the legislative branch has gone down 7 percent. And right now, uh, funding for the legislative branch is at 0.36% of the $1.33 trillion that appropriators uh, appropriate. So the the amount of money that's being spent on Congress is a tiny percent of federal spending, and it has gone down precipitously uh, in the last decade or so. Can we tell exactly where that cost cutting has happened? I mean, I think most of the legislative branch budget is probably staffing. So is that, that really where most of it is? Yeah, so that's right. There's been about a 20 to 30 percent decrease overall in uh, staff inside the legislative branch over the last 20 to 25 years. Let me put it in useful context. There's a thousand fewer House committee staff than there was 20 years ago. There are 2000 fewer people at GAO, which is the federal government's watchdog, than there was 20 years ago. Uh, The same thing is true for the personal office staff. The same thing is true for the Senate. So overall, position by position, agency by agency, there are many fewer people doing the work of overseeing the executive branch and engaging in writing legislation than there was just 10 or 20 years ago. And the consequence of that is that the executive branch uh, is largely unchecked by Congress uh, and that there isn't any real capability to engage in the type of rigorous oversight that's necessary. And just sort of one sort of interesting additional fact is that even as the number of staff have been cut in the House and Senate offices, the nature of the work itself has changed. So for the people who are working for the members themselves, uh, there tends to be many more people doing constituent services work. So a lot more people have moved to the district offices. And of those that remain, they tend to be doing communications work. So as a practical matter, the number of people doing policy-related work in Congress has fallen even further than the numbers would initially suggest. That's interesting. I had never heard that before. Why has there been a move toward more constituent service work? Well, in part because the constituencies themselves have grown. I mean, Congress itself, you know, has, has decreased the number of staff, but the number of people represented by each member of Congress, I, I don't know it offhand, but it's up 30 or 40 or 50 percent, depending on the period of time that you're looking at. So the needs for constituent services have increased significantly. And not just that, the nature of technology has changed. So that before when you used to get you know, a number of phone calls or used to get postcards in the mail. Now you get deluged with email. So the nature of the communication, like the frequency of of communications has gone up significantly as well. And members have responded to this. I think they're also responding to the fact that for most members of Congress, there isn't a lot that they can do from a policymaking perspective. A lot of decisions are being made by leadership and they're reinvesting uh, in constituent services because that's the thing that's most likely going to get them reelected. As far as the overall decreases in the in the gutting of the subcommittees, I'm speculating to some degree here, but I'm I'm guessing a large part of that has to do with 
a desire on the part of members to say, hey, look at us, we're tightening our own belts uh, first as the government faces overall fiscal challenges, et cetera, et cetera. But is there any sign, if I'm right, is there any sign the tide is turning on this? Is, are, are you starting to see any rank-and-file members or leadership starting to stick up for the legislative branch more and start to make arguments for why funding it matters? So the way you've described it is exactly right, although it's, it's a little bit more pernicious than that. Uh, when Newt Gingrich came to power in 1995, he said that the federal government was large and bloated uh, and that they need to make an example in Congress. And he personally is largely responsible for the, the cliff that Congress went over in terms of cutting, you know, abolishing the Office of Technology Assessment, killing off the department at CRS, getting rid of a third of the committee staff and so on and so forth. What was going on in part was not a desire uh, so much that Congress had a lot of fat that needed to be cut, but to actually outsource the role of lawmaking to the lobbyists and the think tanks that were so closely affiliated with Gingrich. This wasn't so much an effort to uh, save money, but to change where the decisions are made. Members of Congress, though, uh, nowadays, when they look around, you know, they run for Congress for a reason. They want to make things better. They want to change things. And they realize that they are largely incapable of doing the things that they want to do because they don't have the staff support available to do those types of things. So there has been uh, a, a change in perspective for members. There was just the, um, the meeting yesterday for the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, 12 Democrats and Republicans talking about what's wrong with Congress and how to fix it. And if you didn't know, based on where they were sitting, what their party was, you wouldn't have been able to tell the Democrats from the Republicans. They all had similar laments about the terrible schedules that they have, about uh, a lack of resources to do the work that they need to do. So I think that there is a real understanding that has come that Congress is broken and that it's broken in part because they haven't invested in the institution and the consequences that the wheels have come off. In our last couple of minutes, Daniel, I want to switch gears a little bit to another aspect of the budget process, which is actually the, the, the OMB budget submissions, or more accurately, the agency budget submissions. You guys in your most recent survey found that there was a, shockingly to me, large number of agencies that still are not publicly posting their uh, their full congressional budget justifications. Talk, talk, talk about your findings a little bit there. So we did a survey of 456 agencies across uh, the federal government to try to figure out whether they are making their congressional budget justifications online as is required uh, by OMB. And what we found is that 21% of the agencies that we looked at did not make their CBJs available at all. And 6.1% of them published it for either 2018 or for 2019, uh, which means that they probably feel that they have the obligation to publish it, but they just couldn't bring themselves to do it at one point or another. The thing is, they are required to publish these documents online within two weeks of submission to Congress, uh, but they're not doing it. And in fact, uh, the Office of Management and Budget itself did not publish its own congressional budget justification, either by itself or as part of the Executive Office of the President's uh, uh, budget justification. So there are a lot of uh, agencies that, for whatever reason, haven't complied. And this is a real problem. This is a problem for agency staff who are trying to find prior years uh, justifications. This is a problem for members of Congress who are trying to figure out, you know, what agencies have asked for and what they plan to do. And it's a problem for those of us in civil society who are trying to follow along and figure out what's going on. Do we know for a fact that these CBJs exist? You know, they're, they're in a desk drawer at OMB somewhere, or are they just not being created at all? Is there any way of knowing that? Uh, so we know some of that. So for the 6.1% that we found, you know, where they put one of them online, it stands to reason that if they did one, then they probably did at least 
you know, they probably do it on an annual basis. And all of the congressional budget justifications inside the executive branch go to OMB for final approval. So OMB should have them all. Uh, and in fact, uh, last year and the year previous, Congress requested that OMB publish all the congressional budget justifications on its website. OMB has declined to do so. Um, I don't know if there was like an answer, but they, but they have not done so. Uh, and part of what we were asking appropriators this time around is that if uh, OMB is not responding to a, a request from Congress, uh, maybe it's time that Congress, uh, you know, require them to do so. Congress has the final say here, so it, it, I'm, I'm just making a devil's advocate argument here. So, so some of what's in the budget justifications from a citizen's perspective might be moot by the time the appropriations process is all done. So say a little bit about why, why seeing the contents of these justifications uh, matters. Well, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that this is from the agency's perspective as managed by OMB. This is their perspective on what they intend to do with their money broken out at a pretty high level of detail. And it's designed to be human readable. So if you try to read the budget or the budget appendix or the supplemental materials, it's impossible to, well, it's not impossible. It's, it's virtually impossible to make any sense of it whatsoever. But it has something that's written in pretty straightforward prose that you can actually sit down and read or look up if you want to. It's something that's, that's pretty valuable. And even though... Uh, Congress ultimately has the say in terms of what gets funded or what doesn't get funded to some extent, although agencies can always move that money around. Understanding what the agency asked for and what they said they intend to do, it gives you a really good sense when you come back and look at it the next year as to whether they did what they said that they would do. Uh, it's really important from an accountability perspective to understand what their plans are and, and whether they met them. And that's the value of these documents. Daniel Schumann is the Policy Director at Demand Progress. To hear this interview or any of our other programming anytime, subscribe to The Federal Drive on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.